Hi, this is D.S. Martin, author of the poetry book, Conspiracy of Light, Poems Inspired by the Legacy of C.S. Lewis. You're listening to Pints with Jack. If there is to be any more space traveling, it will have to be time traveling as well. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 28, The Dark Tower. After Hours with Dr. Junius Johnson. Welcome, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And today we discuss a very strange corner of Lewis's writing, an incomplete draft of what appears to be uh, an abortive sequel to Out of the Silent Planet. Our quote for today actually comes from the end of Out of the Silent Planet, and in the Dark Tower, Lewis kind of works out the ramifications of that, discussing, exploring the implications of what time travel might look like. Today, I'm glad to be joined by my friend, Dr. Junius Johnson. Junius Johnson is a Yale-trained scholar of theology, philosophy, and literature who devotes his time to thinking and writing about whatever is good, noble, and excellent and how to bring these things to bear to nurture meaningful lives, especially as it touches Bonaventure, I understand. <laughs> He's a prolific writer, an engaging speaker, an inspiring teacher, and a passionate musician. So, Junius Johnson, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Rather than scotch today, I uh, got back from the weekend with a bit of a sore throat, so I am drinking peppermint tea that my lovely wife made for me. And what about you? I am also drinking peppermint tea as I am here doing a lot of voice recording this week and trying to just do some good vocal maintenance. Well, because Ransom has been uh, learning a foreign language, we have a different language for uh, saying cheers every week. And so this is kind of our first episodes where, where we'll actually get to say cheers. So cheers. <laughs> cheers. What else should our listeners know about you? What's, what gets you up in the morning these days? Well, I love teaching. And the way that I do it these days is I, I do it through synchronous online courses, which gives me access to a different type of student, anyone, not just those who can afford to reorder their lives and go back to college or whatever. And so if they're interested in the types of things that I work on, um, come and hang out and let's have some great conversations together about some cool stuff. Yeah, that's Junius Johnson Academics, right? That's correct, yes. Okay, and David, of course, will have the links in the show, and, and uh, I'm sure that there's some great conversations going on. Well, I want to just kick off, um, before we even discuss what uh, what the Dark Tower is, and I'm not sure that either you or I know, I'm not sure Jack knew, um, <laughs> which is part of why it didn't come to light. Um, what drew you to this book? Well, when I was in college, I, I had a conversion to Christianity when I was 16, and um, and I entered into a Puritan phase where I felt like I had spent my whole life looking at the world one way, and I and I suddenly learned that it wasn't that way. And in many ways, that came as a great relief because I didn't like the way that I was looking at it. I didn't like the way it looked to me, but it, it called into question what I could trust about my intuitions about the world. And mm. so probably fueled by such things as, you know, whatever's pure, whatever's noble, think on these things. Um, and there's a way that seems right to a man, the end thereof is destruction. I, I came to the conclusion that I really needed to um, silence the world's voice in my head and fill my, my head with the church's voice instead. Mm. What that meant to me at the time, being a non-denominational evangelical Protestant, um, I didn't have a whole lot of tradition to go to. So that meant reading the Bible and that meant reading apologists. And, you know, big on the list was C.S. Lewis. And so I dove in and just devoured everything I could find. As soon as I started reading, I rediscovered the same love that I had had in Narnia since I was a little child and was going through that. So there was, there is, of course, a finite amount of Lewis to be read. 
And in the mid nineties, it was even more finite than it is now. And so, um, as I was getting to the ends of things, I began to sort of, you know, grasp at straws for whatever is there. And I came across the dark tower and other stories. And I'm like, Oh, great. More fiction. I'll pick that up. And right away from the beginning, Walter Hooper begins describing this incomplete manuscript fragment that was potentially, that was the sequel to Out of the Silent Planet. And I didn't need to know anymore. I was hooked at that point. Like this is, you're sitting behind the curtain now and you're seeing another, a, a possible world, right? And, uh, and that's all I needed to know. I think that that mirrors, well, certainly mirrors my own experience. And I think a lot of readers, when I put together Mere Christians, it's the kind of thing that I saw in the stories again and again, that people read Lewis, you know, you kind of read your standard Lewis or your Narnia or whatever. But once uh, you start reading Lewis on your own at a time when you need what he has to provide, which is so much, there's this great hunger and you start just consuming things. And for yes. me, it was kind of like check, checking paperbacks into a big barrel. And so- <laughs> That's part of why I came to Till We Have Faces. And by the way, there's a we have to slurp our glass every time I mention Till We Have Faces. You go. <laughs> David and Matt uh, think that The Great Divorce is Lewis's best book, and I acknowledge that it's their favorite. Um, but <laughs> Lewis said Till We Have Faces was far and away. And yes, listeners, we will connect the Dark Tower to Till We Have Faces. But this idea of, of rooting around in the corners of Lewis, I think, is really fruitful. I also just got back from the Mere Anglican Conference, mm -hmm. uh, Mere Anglicanism Conference in Charleston, South Carolina, and a fantastic weekend with Alistair McGrath and Michael Ward and Peter Kraft, and just uh, wonderful speakers. Jerry Root was there. Um, but one of the things McGrath kept hammering home is that apologetics is not an end to itself. Apologetics is about a story. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a great deal about that, even in my own work on Toyo Faces. And it's fun to see Lewis write an abortive story, write a story that really just didn't come off and in some ways has yeah. a whole lot of a whole lot of issues. Um, so Yeah, and you learn a lot about a writer from seeing some of the directions that they were tempted down and, and in this instance walked quite a long ways down, mm -hmm. but ultimately felt that it wasn't you know, either wasn't worth bringing to completion or didn't see the path himself to bring it to completion. Yeah. Well, and Diana Glyer is good on, you know, the Williams book, The Noise of Something That Wasn't There, something like that. Mm. And how everybody, Michael Williams, his wife, and all the inklings said it was terrible and he abandoned it. And just the way that we, uh, the, the way that hopefully we have friends good enough to tell us when, when we're going <laughs> wrong. Yeah. Well, a lot of people have not ever heard of the Dark Tower. And so, so let's talk a little bit about what it is, what the background of it was. And then I had a question as I was thinking about it, and I don't know that I've ever really ran down the answer. Um, there's that kind of famous discussion between Lewis and Tolkien conversation about Jack should write space travel and Toller should write time travel. And Toller's never really did anything about that besides the Notion Club papers. But tell us what the Dark Tower is. Yeah, the Dark Tower is this, this funny – manuscript that Walter Hooper discovered, as he tells it, quite by accident. Um, as, as This was not long after Lewis had died and, and Warney was cleaning out the house in preparation for moving into a smaller place. And a lot of Lewis's papers were, he was just burning them. There was just a bonfire that went on for three days and who knows what we lost in that in that purge. But um, I think it was the gardener who sent word around to Hooper, who happened to be at college at the time, and, and said, hey, you got to get over here. Um, there's a stack of stuff you might want. And so he did, and he was able to cart it all away, and he started going through it. He started reading this thing, and he realized very quickly this was an aborted sequel to um, Out of the Silent Planet. Obviously aborted because he'd never heard of it. It hadn't been published. The manuscript is incomplete, and we don't know 
Lewis never talks about it elsewhere, so far as I've ever heard anyone say. And so we don't have any sense of why he didn't bring it to completion, whether he, you know, uh, Hooper even has the supposition that he probably forgot that he wrote it after a certain point in time. Mm-hmm. Many of the inklings said that they had not heard it, although eventually some folks began to say, no, I did see. Uh, he did read parts of that to us. So there was that whole situation, but it was an attempt to go down a certain direction for both Ransom and the world of what came to be the Cosmic Trilogy that was ultimately aborted. Well, and that quote that we started uh, with is from the the last pages, the last few lines of Out of the Silent Planet. And the narrator talks about the door to outer space being closed. And if there's any, to be any more space traveling, it will have to be time traveling as well. And there's this brief reference to you know, 1938, 1939 mm-hmm. in the story. And so that seems to indicate perhaps that it's around then. I think Charlie Starr has dated the handwriting to around that time. Mm. I actually had the, had the manuscript in my hands this last summer at the Bodley. Oh. How cool. It was great. And I have pictures of it and and all the rest. So yeah, it seems to have been this attempt. And not surprising that the Inklings didn't hear about it, I think. Um, Well, Gervais Matthews recalls it quite clearly. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've been thinking about, especially as I read Paul Fittis' book, um, have -hmm. you read that yet? Uh, (sighs) Friends and Coinherents? Wonderful book. Oh my gosh. Uh, About the relationship between Williams and Lewis. And- he points out that, you know, especially during the 40s, a lot of times Inklings was just Jack and Warney and Williams. Mm. And to have a meeting of the Inklings was never all 19 of them there at the same time. They wouldn't mm. have fit. Yeah. Um, and so maybe not coincidental. Um, if Joel Heck does his marvelous chronologically Inklings instead of chronologically Lewis and tracks down <laughs> every day of everybody's life, maybe we'd have a better insight. <laughs> so what's the basic plot of what's going on there? So a group of men, which includes both the Lewis narrator character that we were introduced to at the end of Out of the Silent Planet and Ransom, who was our protagonist in Out of the Silent Planet, are gathered in college at Cambridge to be shown a startling new discovery. Mm-hmm. And the discovery is the invention of what uh, the character calls the chronoscope. So what a telescope is, the telescope allows you to see far away in space a chronoscope allows you to see into other times. Mm-hmm. And so as they all gather together around this thing and they have conversation about the philosophy of time travel and time itself and these other sorts of things and in good Lewis fashion, and then they're interrupted by the annoying scholar in college that none of them can really stand. And he's got a pet nickname for Lewis, Lulu, that Lewis hates. Um, <laughs> they, they fall into a habit of watching as images begin to appear in this thing. And they're, they're constantly seeing images really of just two locations, primarily this dark tower and then of a room inside the dark tower in which there's a, a very particular figure with a, a stinging horn filled with poison in the center of his forehead. And folks are marched through repeatedly to receive a sting from this guy. And the sting converts them into these sort of mindless automata who become the, the soldiers for this for this thing. So they're not really sure what they're seeing or what's going on with it. And there's a lot of heated discussions about it. Ransom at one point suggests that what they're seeing is hell, which everyone has a very violent reaction to. He later changes his mind about that. But uh, things kind of come to a head when a figure shows up on the screen who looks exactly like one of the men in the room, Scudamore. Like Scudamore, yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, that that leads to a series of events in which Scudamore becomes so agitated that he jumps at the chronoscope and actually changes place with the Scudamore in the other time. And so now our Scudamore is off in this other time and their Scudamore is in our time. And the story uh, largely follows Scudamore in other time before it finally breaks off. Mm-hmm. Well, and he's trying to rescue somebody, right? Right. His his fiance, who was coming to Cambridge to visit him, she also has a double there. And when he sees her there, um, and he doesn't want to, she's about to be stung by the poison, and he doesn't want that to happen. And that's what causes him to jump at the chronoscope and get dragged in. That's just it's it's really strange, and the the sting is right in the middle of his forehead. It's hard not to see phallic and Freudian whatever mm-hmm. um, in that, and then the hellish cavorting and all the rest. I think it's rife with some some Lewisian ideas, but I think that he rightly abandoned it. And Lewis doesn't. It's he says, "Don't ever throw anything away." Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, I mean, as I as I discovered with with early prose joy and surprised by joy, Lewis is really kind of copying over um, some of those passages. And I think that the ideas are are flipping around a little. The kind of the flipping of the characters of the Scudamores reminds me a little bit of Merlin and the Beggar. Right. Mm, yeah, for sure. That kind of mirroring with the senseless and the and the sensible. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think he picks up on some some of those trails. Well, and another way to look at it too is it's a bit like if you take the um, the character from the Great Divorce, mm-hmm. who's got the what is it a monkey or on his back? Not a monkey, but whatever the thing yeah, is on his back. A lizard. The lizard, lizard, right? Yeah. Yep. And you know who successfully lets go, mm-hmm. oddly of all the characters. It's a bit like a reflection of him temporally before and mm-hmm. after the um, letting go of the lizard, letting the lizard be killed. So this is before screw tape. Mm-hmm. I've got to believe that he's already, and I don't, I need to follow this up, but I've got to believe that he's already thinking about his Paradise Lost book. Mm-hmm. And I know that the idea for screw tape doesn't come for a while. And then the broadcasts start in like 41 and he talks about the devil there. Orpheu, and you know, as listeners know, I'm a names guy, and so the <laughs> names are going to really haunt, haunt me until I figure them out. And I don't know that I have, but Orpheo is clearly an echo of Orpheus. Yeah, and the Sting character is kind of a hellish character, mm-hmm. um, but not hellish, maybe like the Christian hell, perhaps more like a Greek hell. Mm. And I wonder if this uh, the Scudamore leaping in to go save Camilla isn't at least in some ways an, at least an echo of a trope of Orpheus going down to hell to save Eurydice. Uh, possibly in support of that, of course, Scudamore's name himself is Shield of Love from the Old French. Um, and so there's this notion of him jumping in to be the shield for the one that he loves, to provide a shield made itself out of love and on and on we go, right? Oh, yeah. That's great. Okay. Yep, 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 yep. Well, and we know that uh, Lewis was involved in helping Tolkien with his translation of Sir Orfeo. Mm-hmm. I did a paper once tracing some of the clear echoes of Ovid and Virgil uh, and their Orpheus tales in Silver Chair. Mm. And so there's just, there are some Orphean echoes. And then Barfield wrote the play Orpheus, and Lewis read right. that too. And so you've got the Dante stuff going on with Sayers and Williams and others and Lewis. But I think that there's a clear kind of Orphean thing that's happening. And I think this this may be kind of Lewis's Lewis's contribution to that. That's a great connection. Well, you've got the you've got their agreement. And once again, I don't have the chronology in front of me. It may have been a little bit later than this. But you've got this agreement about space travel and time travel. Do you think that this is a piece of that at all? 
I wouldn't necessarily know how to put that in. And I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you as I haven't chased that out yet. Because if if Lewis had proceeded with this, then he would have done both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and by yeah. abandoning this, he confines himself to the space travel question. I'm I'm inclined to think it has more to do with images. You know, as, as Jack talks about, his his stories begin with images that then develop into things. Mm-hmm. I think he had some images that that were really interesting to him that he was mm-hmm. very curious to try track mm-hmm. down, and they just never resolved as clearly as he liked. Yeah, well, it all began with a picture, and there it's certainly there are some certainly some graphic uh, some graphic images going on, and I wonder if maybe this tr- attempt to save an earthly woman from some chronological hell mm-hmm. um, morphed into him doing the best, the closest thing that he could get to the angelic in mm-hmm. Paralandra, which is saving an innocent woman from, from a devil from our world. Yeah. And he p- picks up some traces of it from Paralandra. I think that's right. The, he seemed to have had some, in, in abandoning the Dark Tower, there seemed to have been some thematic elements that he did feel were important to pick up coming out of out of out of the silent planet and they found their way into Paralandra. And then and then others that found their way not until that hideous strength. Yeah. And even beyond. And right. well, I was just talking with Diana Glyer um the other day and she has publicly on Facebook been mentioning a book that she's writing and uh, a word count that she's doing. And so a couple of weeks ago she talked about having to cut a bunch of the words. But hmm. you know, any creative person will know that you don't know what you really want to write until you find out what you don't don't want to write. <laughs> That's right. So, well, and another experience that any of us who've tried our hands at writing stories before have had is you have an idea and you like it, and it's and you think it's a good idea, and you're mm-hmm. and you're working down the way, and as you're working your way towards it, other things come up, and as you follow those out, you reach a point where you can't take both of these paths. You're going to have to abandon one of them. Mm-hmm. And that's you know a heartbreaking part of being a writer, but it is a part of being a writer. Um, there's a lot of things that you could have done that you couldn't do because you did the one thing that you did choose to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like Chesterton says about you know the, the particular is so important. The great the greatness of love is in following a single woman and setting aside other things to do that, and and that's very true of story as well. Yeah, well, and the pure in heart is what does Kierkegaard say is to will one thing. Yeah, and then doesn't Lewis say in the Great Divorce the reason why the pure in heart see God is because they're the only one who wants the only ones who want to. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not bummed by I'm not bummed by the fact that he didn't finish it. Um, I wonder. So there are some pages missing, and it breaks off midline, right? That's right. Two pages missing of the these eight and a half by thirteen pages, and then it also stops in the middle of a sentence. And I wonder what happened to those pages. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe they could have been lost in the fire or anything else. And, you know, listeners, there is some controversy about the fire. Most of that controversy has been laid to rest. Jerry Root is really good on this. Walter Hooper tells the story of, yeah, being, I think it was in, I tracked it all down. I've got it written down somewhere. Um, I think it may have been in January after Lewis died. And yeah, Paxford. So I think that's why January 64, yeah. Yep. And Walter tells the story three or four times, and the details are surprisingly consistent. And he told me about it when when we met. And so Paxford was just, or Warney was just burning notebook after notebook and manuscript after manuscript, maybe in part uh, because of grief. And Walter came with a couple, I think he said it was duffel bags. It may have been suitcases, but it was as much as he could barely haul to the bus. Mm. And so maybe the pages got lost. I wonder if 
if if they didn't, if they just got lost somewhere and Jack returned and missed those pages, I wonder if maybe he gave up because of that. Who knows? We know that there were things that Lewis started and then we see them in their finished form, but we don't have a lot of the draft stuff. Mm. So if you've seen at the Wade Center, Lewis's books that have indices in the back. Mm -hmm. In fact, I own one of those books. I own a book from his library. Those indices are alphabetical. Mm. But he could not have made an alphabetical index as he was reading the book. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so there must have been some scratch paper. Right. Right. And then he transcribes it and then, you know, well, and he was he was not very fond, not precious about his own stuff. Um, when Walter uh, was at Cambridge and Lewis had retired from Cambridge and Jack's back in Oxford, there's a letter, there's some letters between them. And Walter asks what he should do with the different books. And Lewis gives pages of instructions for this book and that book. He knew every book in his library. Mm. And then the last line was, or one of the last lines was, concerning my own books, WPB, or apply it to your own use. Of course, <laughs> WPB is waste paper basket. Yeah. So he was not precious about his own stuff. But I, w I want to address something in what you said a while back. You mentioned that you're not sorry that he didn't finish it. And it's generally um, the, the common line in Lewis scholarship is, yeah, it's not very good. Um, and so maybe that's one of the reasons some people have – it is one of the stated reasons some people have cast on its authenticity. I'm going to dissent. Okay. It's not up to the level of the rest of the Cosmic Trilogy. I'll give you that. But I quite like it. Mm -hmm. um, and I wish it hadn't been finished. Uh, and, and, I, and I think that – the difference perhaps lies in as you move from Out of the Silent Planet to Paralandra, Out of the Silent Planet is, is a harder core science fiction novel than Paralandra is. Mm -hmm. And then that hideous strength doesn't even purport to be science fiction at all, but rather a modern fairy tale. And it really right. doesn't have the science fiction elements at all. The Dark Tower is even harder science fiction than Out of the Silent Planet was. Mm. And as a, as a fan of the classic old school H.G. Wells science fiction, um, mm -hmm. I think he's, he's, what he's doing is a really, really great version of that genre of, of mm -hmm. writing. And so to have a complete text from him about that would be, gosh, I would love it. Plus, you know, if, if you read this thing, and I, and I recommend you do, there's two ways to go about it. One is to always keep in mind that you're not going to get to see the end. And I think mm -hmm. that's not the best way. The best way is to just let yourself get lost in it and forget that it's incomplete. And because it's in a book with other stories, you don't know when the end is coming. And, mm -hmm. and it's jarring. And mm -hmm. the, the strength of the jarringness for me is an indicator of how much I was enjoying reading it to that point. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And even if it wasn't Lewis's best fiction, I think that had it been complete, Lewis so repays careful reading. Yeah. And I know some people think that we're just nerdy and fanatical about it. but and who's to say we aren't? <laughs> well, <laughs> we are, but that's not what's driving what's going on here. That's right. And I just was at a, at a conference with these world-class scholars and they're reading bits of Lewis and the whole audience is just dying laughing because it's so well done. And so yeah. I don't know that it was going in a great direction, but yeah, I think that there's something to be said for what would it have looked like. And I think that he decides that he doesn't want to go that way. I'm just, I'm mindful of people clamoring for a book about angels. So after mm. he gets done writing Screwtape, then- People say, well, now give us the angelic perspective. And he says, well, I can't. And the closest I think he gets is Paralandra. Mm -hmm. Even then, it has to be infected. And so I think that maybe maybe this is kind of the positive side of the negative Dark Tower. Yeah. So Ransom is the opposite of Stinger Man, yeah. right? 
And Camilla is Tenadrill. Mm-hmm. Like you said, I think it's a, a, a repository for some later ideas. You know, if you would ask me the question, what what would you change about the Dark Tower? If you if you could have yeah. if you could change it and make it such that we all wanted to read that book, what would it be? And it would it would be quite simply this: I would not have it be a sequel out of the Silent Planet. I think he's right that it's wrong for that for that world that he built for that universe, mm-hmm. as it were. But as a as a standalone. Or even as the grounds of a different set of stories, I think it could it was it would be quite promising. And part of the reason why is um, the last time I was reading it, I was teaching a course um, which I'll be repeating again this spring on the Cosmic Trilogy. And originally, I did not in- include it when I planned it. I planned a ten week course, and it was not in there. And then I, after the course had started, as we were coming to the end of Out of the Silent Planet, I was like, "Hey, would everyone be okay with adding another week so we could do the Dark Tower?" And they were like, yeah, sure, absolutely. And we did. And in the course of, not even the course of preparing for the course, but in in the course of discussing it in the classroom, I saw some things I hadn't seen before. And I got a Mm -hmm. glimpse of where I think the plot was going. Because I've never understood how it was supposed to be a sequel to Out of the Silent Planet. I mean, yes, there's Mm -hmm. the time connecting thing, but that doesn't get you very far in seeing how it's really carrying the story forward. Ransom is kind of sidelined this time around. And so Mm -hmm. that's difficult to follow um, and whatnot. And I saw that there's a very clear connection between the demonic, if you will, goal in Out of the Silent Planet and the characters Weston and Divine and the demonic goal of the other timers in the Dark Tower. Yeah. And that is a certain way of achieving immortality. Mm-hmm. But where Weston and Divine want to achieve immortality by leapfrogging through space from planet to planet, right. the other timers want to achieve immortality by leapfrogging through time through instances of their bodies in different timelines. And that was that was brilliant to my mind and got me very excited about the whole conceit that lay behind mm-hmm. the thing. And that set me off on time metaphysics and, and what he's doing with all of that. And there and there's a very technical discussion of time metaphysics that he's completely made up that he's put in there. And yeah. just, yeah, maybe I kind of got a little lost in the nerd trail at that point. Well, no, I, I think there's lots of rabbit trails to, to go down. And in our correspondence before this interview, the parallels that are going on that he resolves in Paralandra, I thought that was brilliant, that they are doing some skipping around. And there is this kind of mnemonic urge, um, devilish urge. And Lewis uses uses similar terms to that mm-hmm. about this idea of dominating another culture or another time. And he seems to be kind of standing against domination. It's, man, well, I'm always I'm always contextual, contextualizing things chronologically. Mm. You've got the growing threat of war. Right. Yeah. It's thirty-eight, and Hitler's the chancellor, and you got thirty-nine coming. Yeah. And so we're not sure when it was written, but it, it's you've got this kind of growing sense of dread. And I've talked about it on the show before. I mean, uh, Virginia Woolf takes one look at the at the sky and the bombers and puts rocks in her dress and w- walks into the, the river and drowns herself. Mm. You know, the psychic damage of the potential of all of this evil and an evil the like of which we hadn't seen before. Yeah. So I think that there's uh, a sense of kind of that growing oppression um, going on there. Paradoxically, there might have been a reason to abandon it, that he felt that what he needed was was not a dark tower, but a light planet. Mm-hmm. Very nice. What he needed was not a dark tower, but a light planet. That's so good. The thing that struck me on this rereading is the first few pages seem almost like what Lewis is at currently at this time criticizing Tolkien for. Mm. which is too much Hobbit talk. 
Yeah. And, you know, the early drafts and Diana Glyer is great on this. You know, the it's the Hobbits talk about Hobbit stuff. And you, I think you get a real glimpse into almost a transcription of what an Inklings meeting would have looked like. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're talking about these abstruse things and, you know, it's just, I think that that's what that is. Yeah. And people outside the room don't care and that's okay because all the people in the room do care and this is the safe place to do that. Right. Well, and like Lewis says that you, your first friend agrees with you about the all the right things and your second friend opposes you about all the right things. You know, and this is our first introduction to McPhee. Yes. I mean, we don't see McPhee again until that idea of strength. That's right. And, and and this is interesting because McPhee's the only character introduced in the Dark Tower who survives fairly unchanged. Same name and very similar characteristics. He's he's my Welsh skeptic, right? All the yeah. way through to that hideous strength, yeah. And so there's there's a there's a tenderness for that. There's a he's, he loves that character for some reason, and mm. and but I think the way that we see and this is a discussion for another book, but the way that we see Ransom relating to McPhee with this sort of condescending tenderness is a bit of Lewis's own feelings towards him as well. Yeah, Welsh or Scottish? I thought he was Welsh. Am I wrong about that? I could be. Yeah, I I think it's Scottish, but I'd, I'd have to double check. And he emphasizes his accent, of course. Um, McPhee represents to some degree, to some small degree anyway, the great the great knock. He represents Patrick, mm -hmm. you know, and his kind of Scottish um, rationalism. But um, but you're probably right. But yeah, I think it's a real insight into what some of those conversations in those rooms would have done. Having read Paul Fittis' book, and listeners, it's hard to get your hands on. It's over $100. And if Crystal Heard and, um, and Zenzuk hadn't sent me a copy, I certainly wouldn't own it. But but Fittis is a, a Baptist. Um, he's a theologian at Oxford, a systematic theologian, and has done this marvelous book tracing the relationship between Williams and Lewis. And they got deeper and closer much more quickly. And I loved him tracing the romantic theology and mm. the term, the weight of glory, you know, some of that stuff that, that Fittis does in the early, early chapters. And I'm wondering if Lewis is even now, and once again, I need to pull up my, my, my Joel Heck. I, I wonder what of Williams Lewis was reading around this time. And we don't know that it was 38, 39. Mm -hmm. Charlie would be a good one to, to help us with that. But if it is around then, what Williams is he reading? And that kind of spooky supernatural thriller thing that's going on in Williams, this is Lewis's kind of first attempt at doing that. Yeah. And when I teach the the trilogy, I always treat it as a tetralogy and I ask students to read um, uh, Place of the Lion mm. in between Paralandra and That Hideous Strength. Mm. Because those books are parallels and opposites in so many ways. I mean, Damaris and Mark have so much in common, mm -hmm. you know, and Anthony and, and Jane. And I think that, well, I think it's just even a truism at this point that Lewis is kind of writing, trying his hand at writing a Williams type supernatural thriller. Mm. But I hear some of that stuff uh, going on. And there's that, that kind of magical and playing with elements and, you know, and. I, there's some of that stuff I think going on here in in this book uh, that you don't see until later. Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Doctor Ransom and the Lewis persona that um, <laughs> that we see in this book. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so you know, if you recall, at the end of Out of the Silent Planet, which are which many of our listeners won't have read yet, but a lot of them have read before, but it's okay. Well. As you're as you are about to read it and enjoying your joyous yeah. first encounter with this remarkable book, oh, you will jealous. discover that there's an uh, an little epilogue in which uh, Lewis invents himself as a character mm -hmm. and says, "This is how I came into this whole story." 
Mm-hmm. And that has a really profound effect because what it does is it it is it makes the claim that you know using a literary device that it's actually nonfiction that this really in mm-hmm. fact happened. Now, of course, Lewis doesn't think that you're gullible enough to buy that this is in fact the case, and that's not the point of it. The point of that literary device is um, it makes clear that this story should be thought about in connection to our own world. Mm-hmm. That the things that are true in this story have dark echoes in our world. And and then the point of that epilogue is really to sort of amp things up. He makes the claim that, you know, we we knew something was coming when we started talking about this. And it turns out events have moved a lot faster than we thought. And this book is coming out almost too late. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 fun and it's exciting. And it's fun for a reader. And I, I always love that literary conceit where you're, oh yeah, the documents of this guy fell into my possession and I discovered this or that. It's much the same thrill that I get when reading The Magician's Nephew and Uncle Andrew talks about the box containing dust from another world and how the box itself was from Atlantis and just sort of tying all these things together. Mm-hmm. Really, really cool. Come into this book, and once again, Lewis and Ransom, who are these friends, as we've learned from the end of Out of the Sun and Planet, are invited along. But it's very different because this time Lewis, the narrator, is invited along as a character in the story himself. And so he gets to play a role, and it's not just events that took place that are being recounted to him later on. That is a conceit that will not be picked up again. Uh, well, I, I should say at the beginning of Paralandra, the Lewis character plays a mm-hmm. very, very large role because he's going to be there to be the one to help Ransom carry out, you know, he's got to seal him into the coffin that he's going to travel to Paralandra in and he's got to be there to receive him when he comes back. And there's a lengthy scene at the beginning in which Lewis is being opposed by demonic forces that don't want him to do it. And we mm-hmm. get to follow him through that psychological descent into hell. Mm-hmm. But then when you come to that hideous strength, the Lewis character disappears. Yeah, And that's something that was striking to me in my first reading was I was looking forward to having seen the Lewis character take a more active role in the second book. I was thinking that he would become one of the dramatis personae in the third book, and he never really did. Well, in The Dark Tower, that's true. He, he steps onto the stage in a very powerful way, and, is, and it presumably would have been there throughout the story on the mm-hmm. part of the story that takes place in our timeline. Yeah, no, I think that that's exactly right. And there's this I think that Lewis is kind of entertaining these two personae of himself and Ransom, and some of the inklings suggested that that Ransom was was based on Williams. Mm-hmm. But the thing that really disappoints me is that the name Ransom is so crucial. Yeah, and you know, Maladil says my name is Ransom too. You know, um, or the Ariar said no, it's Maladil. It's Maladil, um, yeah. Jesus says I am Ransom too. I'm called Ransom too. Um, and Ransom is this incredibly important name, and he breaks down the etymology. And then, of course, at the end, he tosses it off and, oh, I've changed the name. And so <laughs> that kind of inconsistency, I think that Lewis missed the trick there, uh, loses the plot a little bit on on containing this consistent thing. It reminded me of the original conceit of the Beatles in mm. Sgt. Pepper, mm. where Paul wanted to kind of do this whole album as if there was this band called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Arts Club Band and Billy Shears and all the rest. And so it started out as this kind of carnivalesque sort of band playing, and then they just you know threw in some of the best songs ever made. But, still. <laughs> but just what they happen to have on hand, yeah. <laughs> right. And so the conceit gets lost along the way, and I think that that happens here. But Talk of Ransom, Brenton Dickinson made a great discovery and published it, and I'm sure that we can track it down and put it in the show notes. And I think that we talked about it during our screw tape season a couple of years ago, that there was another paragraph to the intro of screw tape letters. And you, well, you just you just read that out today. So um, tell us a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, yeah. He was he discovered that there was a, a handwritten version of the preface that differed from what was printed and what we have printed in our in our text. And when he compared them to each other, 
what he discovered was that Lewis originally had said that, you know, whereas in our version, he says, nothing will induce me to tell you how these letters came into my possession. Mm-hmm. In that version, he says, nothing will induce me to tell you how they came into Ransom's possession uh, in the original from which they were translated. Mm-hmm. And so Ransom is introduced as the one who actually got his hands on these things and presumably the one who translated them. It's, it doesn't expressly say that, but Ransom is a philologist and that would make mm-hmm. sense. And when you start thinking through, well, what would he have translated from? And this is this is followed up very well in the article. The most logical thing would be the old solar language that Ransom has learned in Malacandra. And so he's right. the only human literally who could translate them. Um, and you know, perhaps he's gotten these from his travels in places um, that lie outside of our normal experience. So what that does then is it presents the screw tape letters as potentially a part of the same universe mm-hmm. as the cosmic trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that just opens up all kinds of possibilities. And that you, one would wish there was would wish that there were there were more of that thing. But but that Lewis is kind of thinking of Ransom as this kind of central mentor. And I think that if like Walter records um, in the note after this story, if indeed Ransom owes a lot more to Williams, you know, looking at the role of Williams in 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 all of this as being and and Williams is really kind of playing a nexus character in the Inklings. Um, the paper that I did on that I'm hoping to publish at Northwind Seminary on this called William. It's, it's um, Charles Williams, the ultimate inkling question mm. mark. Hmm. And in some ways, he's the most impactful inkling. He's the last inkling to enter, and his death kind of sounds the death knell of the inklings. Mm. And so he just kind of comes barging in, and Tolkien's jealous of him for the rest of his life. And and then he was one of the most consistent inklings. Fit is, is great at tracking that stuff down. So oftentimes an Inklings meeting would be with Williams and Warney and Jack, and that would have been an Inklings. Yeah. And so when Williams is not as consistent, and as Warney famously says, you know, in 1947, no one turned up, the Inklings stop. And so there's this kind of idea of this really strong personality. He's a little older than most of the Inklings by about 10 years, um, and he's writing some really strange stuff that... Tolkien would later say, oh, I had no sympathy. It lay altogether outside of my sympathies. Mm-hmm. But that's not the story that he tells during the day, <laughs> um, you know, during the, the actual time. So I think that you could almost see the specter of Williams here. And I wonder if Williams saw it mm. and then suggested Jack go in a different way. I don't know. I wonder, I wonder what that impact is. Well, one of the things that I would want to make sure that readers come away from this, listeners come away from this with, is the recognition that the Dark Tower is is irreconcilable with the rest of the cosmic trilogy. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it is truly an abandoned pathway. It's a dead end um, path. If you're walking through the forest, um, mm-hmm. you can't go any further down it. You know, the, the, unfortunately, the sort of inconsistency that you talked about, Andrew, um, uh, Lewis was prone to. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this very much in the Chronicles of Narnia. There are, there are a ton of inconsistencies in the Chronicles of Narnia from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And as, as much as fans have done to try to come up with theories to harmonize these after the fact, I mean, the, the reality is he had no idea how Narnia was created by Aslan when he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and he never intended to tell that story. Um, right. And when it came time to do so, a, a writer going back to, to do earlier work in his own world has got a tough choice to make because you're going to have great ideas that – don't fit with what you've done before. And so mm-hmm. do you constrain yourself to what came before or do you follow the great idea? 
I'm not here to tell you which one of those is the right choice, but in Narnia, Lewis chose to follow the, the ideas rather than mm-hmm. to, to choose consistency. So maybe he, he might have had some sympathy with Emerson's uh, claim that the foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Yeah. Or he just might not have been, he just might have, you know, not been thinking about it as much as he had a lot in his mind all the time. He was busy. He yeah. was just busy. Yeah. Uh, he wrote these at the end of long days where he's taking tutorials and he's serving as a night guard, you know, in the, in the war. And he's dealing with Minto, whose health is, uh, you know, pretty soon going to be fading and Warney and all the rest. And by the end of the 50s, he calls himself Cab Horse Tired. (laughs) Um, And that's right in the middle of writing the Narnias. And we're still a couple of years from the refreshment of Joy Davidman coming into his life. So Mm -hmm. if he starts writing them in 48 and finishes them in 53, well, Minto goes into the hospital in 50 and he visits her every day. And then she dies in 51. And he starts corresponding with Joy and Warney's doing what Warney's doing. And so – and Tolkien, on the other hand, is a professor. So he doesn't mm-hmm. have to take tutorial students mm-hmm. and has a relatively stable home life. And so he can afford to really go through the details and and, and have these consistencies. There's a famous story, listeners, about, about Warney and I forget who else. It's in one of the biographies. Somebody talking with Jack uh, about the inconsistencies in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so the, the, the friend says, okay, Jack, um, it's a hundred years winter, right? And he said, yeah. And they say, where do they get the orange oranges for the orange marmalade? The gloriously <laughs> sticky orange marmalade. And Lewis tries to bluster out something and, and, um, and Warney says, oh, Jack, she's got you and you know it. You know? And, so, and of course, with a, fa- with a fairy tale, those consistencies don't necessarily need to match up quite as much. But they were written, I think they were more or less dashed off. And Diana Glyer has said that Lewis crossed out about 7% of what he wrote, which is astounding. Mm. And it infuriated Tolkien because he you know, makes these complete books that are, that are marvelous. So, but yeah, there are some there are some cons- inconsistencies, and-, and so I think we want to come at this yeah. this series that way. You know, whether whether we're including the Dark Tower and how we're thinking of the Cosmic Trilogy or not, whether we're including the Screw Tape Letters and how we're thinking of the Cosmic Trilogy or not, I'm the kind of person who the my first thought is, okay, like we got we got to figure this out. Like, how do these things line up? How can I fit this all together? And I'm going to try to make a nice Tolkien esque puzzle out of it. Uh, but the reality is, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Neither the Dark Tower nor Paralandra are a good follow-up to the tease for a sequel at the end of Out of the Silent Planet. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, the, the Dark Tower is a better look at it, but at the end of the day, it's it itself is still not a very good, doesn't very much fulfill that promise of uh, travel to other planets being by means of going to other times. So that doesn't seem to be at all an element that's, that's present there. I bet you, I bet you that that was um, Lewis kind of pressuring Tolkien Mm. Right, I've done my bit. Now it's time for you to do your bit. Oh, interesting. And Tolkien didn't, and so Lewis tries his hand at it. It's like the book with lang- the book about language yeah. that Lewis and Tolkien were going to write that Steve Beebe found the first chapter of, and Lewis dutifully wrote his chapter, and Tolkien, you know, the niggle that he was, <laughs> you know, never finished it. Yeah, although there was so little time, if you know, if that dating is right of thirty eight to thirty nine, there's so little time that he gave uh, Tolkien to get it done. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he was he was prolific. So, yeah. well, listeners, I know that you'd be disappointed if I didn't talk about the connections to Till We Have Faces, and I've got to admit that I need to do a little bit more careful of a rereading of it. But um, what Scudamore, the Shield of Love? Yeah, there you go. Um, anything about love is about Till We Have Faces, <laughs> which is in fact the greatest of Lewis's fictional works. Far and away, my best. No book. doubt. No question. 
But there's also a phrase in the Dark Tower uh, that Lewis often uses on page 20 of the paperbacks that most of us have. Don't you see that long before you had reached the level of timeless experience, you would have had to become so interested in something else, or frankly, someone else, that you wouldn't be bothering about time travel. And something or someone, Mm -hmm. you know, you see that in the preface to Mere Christianity, something or someone speaking with the same voice, you know, and the something, the other, the outer, um, the, the pointing towards someone else. This is all kind of what Lewis, and maybe why, why Lewis doesn't finish is that it's, there's, it doesn't allow the opportunity to paint a clear enough picture of God. Yeah. He kind of writes himself into a horrible, squalid neighborhood, and there yes. is no heraldic bus coming to pick him up and whisk him away to heaven. That's right. I mean, there's a point at which Scudamore is, while Scudamore is there, he is thinking and speaking in the language that they speak in that place. And, and Lewis delves into that a little bit and says, when he tries to think about it consciously, he can't do it and he can't speak it. He can't read the words on the page. But if he just starts reading and doesn't think about it, it's like muscle memory in the body that he's inhabiting is able to read and speak in that language. And there was a moment when he wants to exclaim, um, thank God. Mm -hmm. And he stops after thank because there's no word for God in the language that he Mm -hmm. is speaking in. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a really cool moment. But like, yeah, yeah, you're right. There's this total absence of God in other time. Yeah. And even, and so I think that he redeems that by picturing, you know, the hellish view of screw tape, but there is God and he's the great enemy. Yeah. And if I'm right about my kind of fundamental field theory of Lewis, that uh, it, it's caritas and claritas, that mm-hmm. his goal is charity, is love, um, especially the love of God. His means to get there or his method of getting there is by making things clear. He clears away obscurities, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's medieval lit or allegorical love poetry or whatever else it is. English literary history, he's always clarifying, which is why Lucy is so lucid. Yeah. And the method that – the means that he uses is story, right? It's a myth retold. It's a modern fairy tale for grownups. He believes in the power of story and narrative yes. it, that clarifies all things, especially the love of God. And I think that he writes himself into a relative dead end. Yeah. Where he realizes that he's not accomplishing his mission. And like you said, I thought that was a brilliant point. There was plenty of darkness going on in the world. Yeah. Um, and he didn't need to add to it. So, yeah. In other words, you know, maybe the answer to all of it is just sometimes fairy stories say best what needs to be said. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I think that's always true. And let's hope that we're old enough to start reading our fairy tales again. Oh, man. Well, what a joy to spend some time with you, brother. And uh, I look forward to more of the same. Dr. Junius Johnson, before we go, um, tell us how people can find you. So you can find you can find all the courses that I teach uh, and the resources that I have for those types of things on academics.juniusjohnson.com. And if you're interested in um, other podcasts that I will be on and appearances, chances to hear me speak and, and that sort of a thing, you can check out justjuniusjohnson.com. Okay, great. Well, as the landlord rings the uh, rings the bell for the final cups of tea. We just want to thank Dr. Junius Johnson again for coming on the show. And we also want to take uh, a moment to thank our Patreon supporters who have been so generous with us. And I was grateful uh, during the conference this last weekend to meet a lot of listeners and some some of the patrons uh, for the show. I want to thank particularly our supporters, Matt and Jake, James and Erica. Thank you also to Marvin and Joelle, Deborah and Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Bud, always raise a glass to you, friend, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly and Gillis, Gary and Stephen, Matt and Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, 
David, Angela, and Rowdy. Well, we pray for our listeners and their prayer requests from the Slack channel every Tuesday. Um, I have Pints with Jack in my prayers every day. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share this episode on social media. Tell your friends about it. And then, of course, join us next time when we'll continue to go further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.